This week on Living the Call, Deacon Charlie talks with Saul D'Alba of Freedom Coaching. Saul holds a bachelor's in family sciences from the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family Studies in Guadalajara and is a certified life coach from the Life Coach Training Institute. Saul's work at Freedom Coaching provides one-to-one mentoring aimed at helping those with an attraction and compulsion to pornography with the goal of reclaiming a healthy vision of the body and of sexuality. In this episode, Deacon and Saul discuss how people fall into a pornographic lifestyle and the ways in which wounds play a role in that. They also talk about the trauma porn causes and how men and women are affected differently. Saul shares his experience of leading clients on the healing journey of freedom from this compulsion through a redeemed vision of the human body. You know, take it as a, a reminder. Your sexual desire is a reminder that you were created or you're called to be a gift to others, right? To get out of yourself, right? To, to make a sincere, yeah, gift. This is Living the Call. Saul de Alba, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Deacon. I'm very happy and excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. And with, uh, you know, visiting people, normally we don't have other people in the studio, so they're not on mic, but but uh, we've got some folks with you. Right? Yeah, it's uh, my sister and uh, friend, Derek. I've, I don't live here in, in the area. I, I'm from Guadalajara, Mexico. Yeah. So it was, you know, a coincidence uh, that I was here in the area. Um, and Derek, he's from here, so he... He was nice enough to drive us here. Awesome. Well, welcome to the show, you guys. And uh, we, are, we don't often have an in-studio audience, so it's great. <laughs> Pre- pressure is up. Did I tell you when we had our initial conversation that I spent a bunch of time in Jalisco and Guadalajara when I was a kid? Did we talk about that or no? Well, that you were in, in the state of Mexico. You I, I lived there, how, but we used to go summers for in Guadalajara. Mm-hmm, that yeah. Jalisco is one of your favorite. It is. Yeah. And you asked me why. I was like, why would anybody want <laughs> I don't know if that was what you were getting at. No, but I just no, thought no. it was really, it's a great place. I think a lot of people don't even realize that um, how diverse Mexico is as a country, right? And all the different states, there's 32 states, right? I've been to 30 of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I still have uh, Monterrey for sure is one. And then the other one, I forget which one it is that I haven't been to. But but for some reason, Jalisco, and I meet a ton of people from Jalisco here. Um, but it's just, it, it's such a beautiful place and a resonant place. And like great food, great people, great vibe, great churches, you know, great uh, Catholic community down mm-hmm. there, at least from what I've heard. Yeah, 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 it is. Um, the Franciscans did a, a very good evangelization there um right now it's it's kind of it's dying off a little bit traditionally right because mm. again we are you know as mexicans we, we say that we are um, more guadalupanos yeah. than we are catholics yeah <laughs> right and maybe someone isn't even in the church but he's or he or she is guadalupano right they pray to 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 our mother mm-hmm. um so that's that's a bit big thing culturally Although, you know, when you get into the, the details of their spiritual life, maybe, you know, it's, it's not completely there. But, uh, but yeah, traditionally we are Catholics. How do you view yourself? Because the, the cool thing about you is you were actually born here. You're born in California, right? In Stockton mm-hmm. up north. But you live now in, in Mexico. Like if somebody asks you, like, who are you? What's your identity? Like it, as it relates to national, you know, kind of uh, identification, well, what do you say? Yeah, that's beautiful. I'm culturally more Mexican. Yeah, I, I feel more identified with Mexico. So I was born here, 
but my parents are from Guadalajara and it was always being going back and forth. And most of the time I've spent or most of my life I have spent in Mexico. And so, cause I do have, for example, cousins that are my same age, but they, they've stayed more here in, in the States and I'm pretty sure they feel more American than yeah. they do Mexican. And, you know, they speak Spanish, but yeah, they don't practice it as much and it's it's normal you lose it i started losing my english right now because of the work i do i've had practice in english but it's it's very rusty but anyways yeah as i feel i feel mexican mm. there's a lot of things i'm very grateful and our family is very grateful to the us right because of the opportunities it has given us right and the american dream um we have we've had it i think you know uh, we've had the opportunity to live that dream, which doesn't mean, you know, like making millions or becoming rich, but just like having opportunities, having different opportunities that are easy, easier to find here in the U.S. So we are grateful and there are things, a lot of things I admire about Americans, but culturally I'm, I'm Mexican and I'm yeah. happy to be Mexican. Does, the, does yeah. the duality, though, of having been born here and living in Mexico, does that come up for you a lot down there? Do people, like, does it come up in any situations? N no, no, no. <laughs> Maybe just, like, when, when you're talking about uh, trips or when you're talking about how many people over there that don't have, like, a visa or haven't had the chance right. to, the to come. Right, the mobility to come back and forth for you yeah. is a piece of cake, right? Yes. For others, it might not be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So for others, again, that's another beautiful opportunity that I have, right? If, if things go uh, south and is that the word? The phrase? Yeah, that's if, the phrase. Yeah, things go south. Yeah. <laughs> things go south. I can just like go to the U S or if, if things go south here, I can go back to Mexico. Right. By so, the way, you're totally fooling me. If you're not, uh, if your English is rusty, it's a pretty good job you're pulling off here. So I'm not sure if I buy it hundred <laughs> percent. I know what you're saying. You think in Spanish, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been practicing my yeah. English, but, or, or, you know, these expressions, you know, that, just aren't translatable. Yeah. So sometimes it, it, I can get stuck. But anyways, it doesn't come up as much, mm. you know, because I'm, I'm I'm brown. It's not like it's not something they would notice. Okay. So maybe sometimes with my accent, because <laughs> sometimes I do have like an American accent when I speak Spanish, like with the R. Right. It doesn't happen as much or or when I stutter with the um, you know, that's a, an English or an American thing sure. to do. Um, so maybe they'll, they'll notice it that way. But it's crazy. It's uh, crazy with language, too. Like, so I'm bilingual, too. I consider myself, even though my mom hates it when I say this, I consider myself Mexican, more Mexican than anything else, even though my family's Colombian. But it's because I was born here in L.A. and my formative years from like three to six were in Mexico. And those are like really important years for people. So I've always considered myself very Mexican. And the thing about languages that's really interesting to me is as I've when I was ordained and I, be, and I started to preach like, you know, the homily at mass and I'd have to preach at the Spanish mass and how I would actually do note taking. Right. Like I would what I do now is I literally write my homily notes. They're all in English. Like, but when I get in the pulpit in the Spanish mass, mm -hmm. I kind of like do this rapid fire sort of translation to try to contextualize what it is that I'm trying to talk about, but doing it in Spanish. And sometimes even I've used English in Spanish homilies, but when I'm talking to the young people, 
And it's crazy what happens there because so many young people go to Spanish mass here. In fact, that's like where most of the young Latinos go is they go to Spanish. Even if they don't speak Spanish, they go to that because that's, <laughs> that's where their tias and their abuelas and everybody yeah. goes, right? So they just go there. But when you say a few things in English, like every head just like pops up. It's like, wait a minute, what happened? <laughs> like I was just phoning it in and now I've got to pay attention. It's like really, it's, it's really interesting to me. But I think like you, when I talk in Spanish, and by the way, anytime, if you're struggling for a word, just use a Spanish one. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we'll, we've got a bilingual, bicultural audience. There's no issues there. But, you know, what I find that's really interesting is that um, I grapple sometimes with how to communicate things in Spanish, even though I'm fluent. Mm -hmm. But I, I kind of like start first with English. And it's like you kind of mm -hmm. probably start first with Spanish mm -hmm. and your vocabulary might be larger in Spanish and you have to kind of like yes. whittle it down. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, sometimes I just have to, as you say, whittle around or just um, go around what I wanted to say, yeah. you know, and maybe it's not going to be as direct as I wanted it, but that's the only way I know how to say it like making it with different words. So it's not exactly what I wanted to say, but you know, it kind of hits the same point. So I'll, I'll use what I'll use what I have. <laughs> they say that language, that Spanish is the language of the heart. You know, and what I find sometimes is that English is really good and very efficient mm -hmm. at like getting ideas across, but they're sometimes not as profound okay. as they can be in Spanish. At least that's what I find. Okay. I don't know. Do you have that similar experience? Well, I guess if I was dating, I would, I would rather be in Spanish. So, I could, <laughs> you know, it would, it would come out more romantic. That's there for sure. Yeah. There's a great quote from uh, one of the Catholic emperors, Charles V, and I don't know the exact quote verbatim, but it's something like, I speak German to the diplomats. This is like back in the Middle Ages, right? I speak English to the horses. Um, I speak Italian to the church, to the churchmen. Mm -hmm. But when I talk to God, to God, I speak in Spanish. And I was like, wow, that like really captures what I'm talking about because there's this like really, I don't know, there's... I almost like I'm a little bit of a different, I have like a different personality even in Spanish. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It happens. I, well, I've had the, the, the fortune of speaking not only English and Spanish, I speak an another language as well. And your personality does change. It kind of like adapts to the culture mm -hmm. where you are at. And even like the rhythm, because each language has its own rhythm, its own melody. Right. And so, so yeah, it, it comes, it brings out a different part of you. Mm. I think that's the way I would express how, it. How do you use your kind of bilingual, bicultural-ness, let's just call it that, your sense of being who you are in the work that you're involved in right now? Like, how does that play a role in, in your work today? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I think most obviously is with the Hispanic clients that I have, right? So it's, it's good to be able to speak in Spanglish, yeah, right, because it it just uh, extends my vocabulary and things extends even like cultural references that maybe you know someone that has only lived in Mexico wouldn't quite understand, or or vice versa, right? Someone who only lives in the U.S. would not understand. So, so yeah, it's it's interesting. I I have, you know, the the well, we'll, we'll get into that later on, but maybe like a steps or, or kind of scripts of, of what I use with, with clients and they're in English. Mm -hmm. Right. So I also do that, that rapid translation. Right. 
Is the problem different? Like, because your work is specifically in the area of um, kind of rehabilitating from addictions to pornography. Is that mm-hmm. a is that a fair way of describing what you do? Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's help people that are struggling with with porn uh, compulsion or or addiction. addiction there's yeah. there's there's a scientific debate whether it's addiction or not. What's your your perspective? My perspective. I would call it a compulsion, right? Because addiction carries a, a, a stigma. Is that mm, correct? A stigma, right. you mm-hmm. know, like once an addict, always an addict. And we we have seen it. Right? We have seen how it's possible to be free from from this problem, from this struggle. And not only not only with coping mechanisms, but you know, to be to get to a point where the the person or our client doesn't even doesn't even desire it anymore mm. right because we believe in fully in redemption right Jesus Christ came you know and he came to save us completely yeah so so yeah we believe we believe it's it's a problem of the heart you know? uh, but it's also a problem of the vision right how we how we see how, how we, we see. look yeah. mm-hmm, how we look at other people and yeah, Jesus came, Jesus came and Jesus he made saves. all things new. Well, it's interesting because when, when I first heard you say that, which was on our initial conversation, mm-hmm. it was a little bit of a news flash for me because I had always referred to it very much in using the language of addiction. Mm-hmm. And I had not thought about it the way that you just said it, right? I had even my own personal thing, which I, you know, talked to you about the phone, on the phone, that I would say to people, oh, I've been a recovering pornography addict for, I guess it's been almost 15 years now, but I, I used that vernacular. Mm-hmm. I spoke that way mm-hmm. and I never took a second thought to go, wait a minute, is this really like, do I have the same, you know, desire and levels of compulsion that I'm now somehow just better able at tamping down or has something changed within me that I no longer kind of desire those things? I hadn't even had that thought until mm-hmm. you said it. Okay. And I, I don't think a lot of people do mm-hmm. have that distinction. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's understandable again because there's there's debate, right? Um, the DSM five doesn't include it in its list. Uh, the World Health Organization and their they have a list of of diseases. Sure. They only they recently I think included like sexual compulsive sexual behavior, right? Which would include porn behavior or struggle with with porn. And, you know, if you read Dr. Mark Lasser, if you read uh, Dr. Peter Kaplonis, they all speak about an addiction, right? So it's understandable that, that we use that language, but we prefer using compulsion. Yeah. And what was it? What was your, what was your well, question? Well, no, I, I, I see the benefit. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to ask a different question, but now that we're on this track, let's, let's keep going with this mm-hmm. because... I do see, though, when you look at the DSM-4 and the journal, you know, the AMA and all these different things, these organizations, though, have also taken on a kind of a political dimension Mm -hmm. to them where the idea of pornography somehow now becomes a political thing. So I can't be against it. So it doesn't surprise me at all that the DSM or any of these things don't Mm -hmm. have these Mm -hmm. because they also don't have other things or they've had things and then they change them. Yep. Right. But it's not necessarily driven by the underlying science but maybe driven more so by the fact that you, you're not supposed to be able to hold that particular position. 
And I would say we live in a dominant culture right now that in many sectors says pornography is, as long as it's consensual, right, and you're just whatever, people are volunteering to show themselves naked and you're volunteering to buy it, no harm done. So that would never be seen as a DSM kind mm-hmm. of issue. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. So it's like, I feel like we're in a new moment now. 50 years ago, I think that, yeah, you'd be right. It's not in there. Therefore, we really can't talk about it like an addiction. But today, the fact that it's not in, in there, I wonder about, well, could there be other reasons why it's not in there? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. And I mean, it, it's a good point that you make. And also the, uh, the fact is that call it an addiction or not, but, you know, the results or the damage that it does to the brain is very similar to what mm. happens with cocaine. Um, the way it hijacks your reward system, right? The way it, it creates this craving, this need for, yeah. for more dopamine. So it's, it's very similar, right? That's why I don't, I don't, I personally don't have a problem with calling it an addiction, right? Just as long as with my clients, right? As long as like, you know what, if you've been in the habit of counting days, you know, because many people have like a victory trackers, right? Or it's been a month, it's been two months since the last time I slipped up, right? Just erase that, you know, erase mm-hmm. that mentality because it's very, what you, where your focus goes, your energy flows, right? So if your focus is on the last time you slipped, you know, if you're, you're keeping your focus on your problem, it's very easy to associate your problem with your identity, Mm. Right. So then you become, how, how different would it be, right? If, if you come up to me and offer me a drink mm-hmm. and I, I tell you, um, or I answer, no, thank you. I'm trying to quit. You know, that means I'm an alcoholic that's trying to quit. Or then if you come up to me, offer me a drink and I answer, no, thank you. I don't drink. I'm not someone who drinks. Right. So just trying to make that conversion, right. That metanoia, yeah. that change of mentality to help them in the process. Yeah. And and maybe it's in the case of alcohol or drugs, you know, there's more opportunity for an external agent to create that conversation. Somebody might offer you a beer, somebody might offer you a joint or whatever it may be. And you're able to say, no, I don't do that. Or I don't do that for a reason. In the case of porn, part of its sort of added element to this is that the vast majority of the consumption is done secretively in private like, no, this is one of the arguments against the, the popular culture might say that, that the reason that it's okay mm-hmm. is like, well, who's it harming? Mm-hmm. You're just doing it by yourself, right? You're mm-hmm. not, it doesn't affect your driving. It doesn't affect, you know, whatever. And so there's like less opportunities for an outside agent to like create that moment for you. And it's more of an internal dialogue of yes. how you think about it, right? Yeah. And I do, I remember, like for me personally, I even said around 15 years, that's because I know the date. I remember the date, but what you're suggesting is like maybe less emphasis on the distance of time between that and this moment Mm -hmm. is part of the healing journey. Yeah. Uh, One of the things we, we have going on is, um, this hashtag day zero, right? We, we, we share, we share that with clients, right? Again, because redemption is real. Yeah. Right. So, you know, whatever happened in the past, you know, leave it in God's mercy, you know, mm. whatever's uh, going to happen in the future, you know, leave it in God's providence. You don't have control over that, but you do have control over what is, what you're deciding right now. You know, this moment, this moment is where salvation is decided. Amen. Right. So, so, you know, like focus on today, focus on today. And it's, you know, this process 
it's not a magic, a magical process, right? And we're not going to wave a wand uh, to just make everything disappear, you know, and God doesn't work that way either, right? He's not going to teleport you out of your struggles. He wants you to invite him to walk with you in your struggles, right? So, okay, you know, uh, be patient with all things, but chiefly be patient with yourself, right? Be patient with yourself. Don't, uh, it, this is St. Francis de Sales. Don't lose courage. Don't be discouraged when you look upon your, when you contemplate, consider your own um, defects. Just, you know, set a task anew, you know, mm-hmm. set yourself to, uh, to try again, to try again. Well, that idea of being focused on the moment is a deeply Christian principle, right? Because mm-hmm. that's the only moment that's real is mm-hmm. right now. There is no past. There is no future. God exists in the kind of eternity of now. Um, and I think that that's, you know, important there. Do you work with both men and women? We, we do, you know, as, as freedom coaching, we do. Um, I've never had a, a, female a, a female client. We do have a female coach. And other male coaches have worked with female clients, but um, I've never had the, the the experience. The reason I ask is because mm-hmm. uh, that's something that surprised me when I started looking back into this subject, knowing about this conversation, is the percentages or the numbers of women who use pornography. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, a friend of mine, I think I mentioned to you, has uh, produced a documentary film on pornography, addiction, compulsion, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's not, even though he's... A person of faith, it's not from a faith perspective. It's yeah. literally the science, the kind of stuff that yeah, you're talking right. about. And in it, one of the protagonists in in this documentary is a woman. And she she tells her whole story of how she fell into it and what happened. And it was like, it was very different to see that experience from a woman's perspective. Like mm-hmm. I was ignorant to how much it seems to be impacting the female sex. Yeah, it's it's curious. Um, I've, I've never had the experience, but, but yeah, it's, it's more of a, a male thing, mm. right? So, and it's, it's, it's a lot of shame for men to be struggling with this, with this, uh, compulsion, with this sin, right? Because alcoholism or, you know, drug addiction is something that's more culturally accepted. Like, mm. okay, you know, it's a disease, but for, for, for someone who's struggling with, with porn or with sex in general, you know, maybe, you know, it's, it's, um, they feel like they're perverts or, yeah. you know, they're, they're dirty. So it's a lot more shame in this struggle. Now, you know, for a woman, it's, it's even worse, right? Because women are not supposed, supposed to be, are not yeah. supposed to be. Um, but it, it is different, right? Because we, we seek different things. You know, right now I can't, you know, I don't have fresh in, in my mind, like what are the, the differences, but it's it's more like for the woman, it's more about the relationship that you create with someone, right? So it's more about an emotional craving, you know, that they're they're seeking to satisfy. Well, the old line is that men use love to get sex and women use sex to get love, right? Mm-hmm. That's the old kind of like popular culture kind of line. Mm-hmm. So I guess there's maybe some insight that could be gleaned from that, even though it's said very coarsely, but it may be project some truth that's in that to your point about the more relational kind of aspects of it. That was the case for this woman in the documentary. It was very much about uh, some woundedness with her father, um, some sense of um, kind of a gap there in her relationships with men that there was a longing, there was a desire 
to have a, a healthy kind of male relationship and one didn't exist. So the pornography came in almost as a, like as a stopgap to the fact that it didn't, that there was nothing there. And I don't know if that's the same for many women who have, mm -hmm. you know, who have the compulsion as well. Yeah. But I presume that the drivers, the motivators are different. Yeah. What, what I've read is, is that also in women, there's a lot of participation, like in, in chats, right? Where they can mm. meet people, where they can talk about things. Yeah. Right. So make that connection and, and then it turns sexual, right? But it's more about the connection for them. I don't know. And again, this is uh, speaks of how we were created, right? The language of our bodies. Uh, I, I suppose I'm not. I'm suppose it has to do with how men, you know, our 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 sexuality is expressed in in our body, you know, outward, right? So it's maybe like easier for us to just um, reduce our sexuality to our genitals, right? And it's something on the exterior, right? So it's just the pleasure. It's just something, you know, just hookup culture. Right? It's easier for us to not get involved emotionally with someone, you know, to just use them, right? And for women, and I think John Paul II talks about this, right? In Love and Responsibility, how there's also, they seek the, the connection, they seek the, the, the emotional um, aspect of the relationship and it's still use, right? They're still using another person, but it's just has this different twist to it. Yeah. Uh. There's also physiological differences, right? Uh, obviously, there's a physical difference, um, which we all know, but there's also the way that the senses are utilized. I remember I was reading something recently about infants, the differences between male and female infants, and one of the things was that female babies, when they're held, will look more intently at the person who's holding them. Literally, like, very much focus on that, that moment of relationship with mom, dad, whoever it is, right? Mm -hmm. They're very focused where a male child will tend to look around a lot more, less mm -hmm. connection with okay. the person. Now, of course, all these things are relative, right? I'm sure both of the babies are looking at their mom. Yeah. But when you compare the two, Mm. significantly more attention to that like immediate relationship between the person who's holding them than a male baby would. And you see this in other, you know, as, as kids get older and even into adulthood, right? The men, at least historically, anthropologically, are going to be maybe more vigilant, more about like what's going on, assessing my environment. You know, I walk into a room, I want to know all the aspects of it, right? Where the woman walking in the room might be more focused around who are the people who are here? Yeah. Like, what's the dynamic in place? What is this person doing? Like, so you see it kind of reflected in, in other aspects. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. And it also impacts the way we love, right? It's, yeah. well, it's it's something just beautiful, right, for, for us. And again, uh, coming back to, to, to the work we do on the very first meeting, one thing we like to, to reframe in our clients is that, you know, because there's this shame, right? And, you know, even though you feel this shame, well, first thing, you're loved. Second thing, your your sexuality, you know, your your sexual desire is one of the greatest gifts you have, right? Sexuality is the way I would define it, right? The, the concrete way in which you manifest yourself, right? As a man or as a woman. So your sexual desire, right, is, is one of the greatest gifts and, you know, take it as a a reminder, your sexual desire is a reminder 
that you were created or you're called to be a gift to mm. others, right? To get out of yourself, mm. right? To to make a sincere, yeah, gift, gift. Yeah, you know? kind of a, a a pouring out. Yes, of uh, yourself, mm-hmm. a pouring out. Yeah. How do people get into, in your experience, how do you get into a pornographic lifestyle? Mm-hmm. Wow. So there are many factors, right? Many, many factors. Um, most, well, speaking of today, right? Speaking of today, right now, it's just so easy to access it, right? It's, it's accessible. It's affordable or, you know, free. Now it's free. Right. Pretty affordable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty affordable. Uh, it's uh, anonymous. Mm. Right. Um, and it's ubiquitous. Right. That's the word. It's ubiquitous. It's it's everywhere. Right. Um, again, porn is not just not just um, the the what we the videos we see on the screen with nude people having sex. Right. Porn porn is much more prevalent. Right. It's any image, any text, any audio. Right, d- intentionally designed to use another person mm. as as a means of one's own selfish sexual gratification, right? So it's right now it's everywhere, and the main sexual educator for kids today, you know, is porn, right? Because back then, or yeah, back then, if if you had a question about you know what is a penis, what is a vagina. Uh, you would go to a dictionary. You would go to encyclopedia, right? But now kids and Google never it. Never to your parents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. And now uh, kids Google it. Yeah. Right, and a bunch of things come up. Right. So it has to do again well, with it being very prevalent, very accessible on the internet. And then the other side of the story, I think, it's a lack of of parents. Uh, having that conversation, uh, lack of parent involvement. So uh, you find out about it with your, your, your siblings, with your cousin, with the neighbor, right. Who have been exposed themselves, right. To porn first or, or, you know, had a, a sexual experience with someone and then they replicate it Mm. with, with their little friend or with their little brother. Right. So from that wound, you know, it, it takes them just, it awakens in the kids, you know, questions and some sensations that they don't have anyone to, to talk to about. So they go to porn. Yeah, that's, that's one, that's one I've seen, uh, because many clients, you know, it's around the age eight. Yeah. It's crazy. 12, it's crazy young, you know, yeah. and that was back then, you know, clients that are grown ups right now. So, so now you know, kids that are growing up today maybe have it even, I mean, in a sense, it's always going to be worse, but at the same time, there's going to be a flip side, right? There's going to be, it's not all uh, dark, right? On the flip side, it's a great opportunity for parents to be proactive about it, right? If there's not as much shame about the sex uh, subject as there was before. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, now you parents, you know, don't wait for for the teacher, don't wait for their f- little friends to talk to talk to your kids about sex. You know, you be the the first one to do it, right? Be proactive, uh, and that's not optional anymore because it's no longer a question of if they're gonna um, see porn, encounter porn. 
It's when, you know, at what age are, gonna, are they going to encounter it, right? So the LFG of the body, right? It's a great resource that parents can learn, right? And that they can send from the moment they're born, you're teaching them how to use the body, mm. right? As a mother, you are teaching them, you know, when you hold them, when, when you breastfeed them, you're teaching them, okay, the body is a gift, right? The body is for the other, right? So from the moment they're babies, of course, uh, maybe having the porn talk when they're about around six years old is what I've read, you know. Wow. I'm talking it's like about- kindergarten, basically. Yeah, and, and of course, you have to talk, to, talk about it in an appropriate way. Right? Of course. You're, you're, you're not going to talk about, you're not going to be explicit, but you're going to, you know, maybe use a, a, a beautiful image, you mm -hmm. know, and like, oh, hey, son, um, do you know how, can you see this beautiful image? You know, what does it make you feel? You know, beautiful images um, uh, provide or provoke happiness, you know, provoke good things in you. Well, there are ugly images as well. Right? There are ugly images that make you feel, you know, confused, sad, you know, maybe excited, you know, it can happen. And it's, you know, these ugly images are called porn, right? Uh, and, you know, what is porn? Okay, so it's people that, you know, um, what, was, what was the exact wording of it? You know, because, sorry, I've got a thing. Don't worry about do, it. Do, do, do. I would say but, if I was going to uh, talk to a six-year-old, I would say it's people taking advantage of each other or... You know, mm -hmm. exploiting one another or mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. You have to simplify it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's people showing parts of their body that are supposed to be covered up. Mm. Okay. Or, or parts that are supposed to be covered up by a, a swimsuit. Right. So if you ever, if you ever encounter one of these images, you know, um, you can come to me. You can talk to me about it. You're not in trouble. Right. It's just... And just to open give kind of permission to, mm -hmm. to have that. Con do, do you think that like, so I'll tell you from my childhood and I don't know if this is like just a Latino thing or whatever, but like, it was like very uncomfortable to have conversations around anything sexual. And I, I think even more so like when I moved to the States, cause I lived in Latin America for a number of years and I came to the States when I was in high school, like middle, late high school, early, early, high, late middle school, early high school. And my friends had, some things with their parents that I was scandalized and shocked at, like how disrespectful they would be to their moms or whatever. Like I was like, <laughs> yeah. what is this? But then on the flip side, they would seem to have conversations with their dads or with their, you know, with their dads, maybe more particularly that were very like intimate and about these kind of subjects. And I'd be like, I can never talk to my dad about this stuff. Like, what are you crazy? Like, it was just weird for me. And I don't know if that was just my own unique experience. If there's something about our culture that's more reserved about these kind of conversations, I don't know. But you're in an interesting position because you're in both worlds of how you might answer that that question. But for me, it was totally taboo. I mean, we just didn't talk about sex or, mm -hmm. I mean, I, we just didn't. And that was not a good thing. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying we didn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that was my experience as well. Yeah. Um, I never had the talk they just i guess they, they just and my sister is here i don't know if she had to talk you know you you're welcome to come yeah. grab a microphone uh, as a woman i mean that would be interesting right as a woman i don't know if my mom ever ever had to talk with her uh but uh, for me they just like bought me a book and you know like oh here you go and that's where i kind of like read uh more about it 
Of course, I'm not sure if I already knew stuff, right? Because you you get in school with your friends, you know stuff. And um, th- those kinds of things, I'm not mm. sure how Americans handle it. For sure, I can confirm that in Mexico, or yeah, in Mexico, it's it's not something we talk about. Mm. It's not something we talk about. It's taboo. I'm not sure where it comes from. Um, but yeah, as an American household, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. I think it's probably uh, a mixed bag, as we mm-hmm. say. There's probably some people who are very good at doing this and other people who aren't. I think the really problematic thing, and you brought this up, there's two things I want to talk about from what you said. One is about woundedness because you brought up that word, but let me hold that for a second. Mm -hmm. The second thing is this idea of whose responsibility is it to have these conversations with, you know, young people. And I think that, you know, a lot of parents maybe make the assumption, oh, they're going to learn this in health class or they're going to learn it for something else. But there again, at least in the United States, I don't know how it is in Mexico, but in the U.S. you run very quickly into a view of sexuality, which is not in keeping at all with theology of the body, not in keeping at all with anything that even approaches that, right? It's more about, you know, just like you said about porn, it's not a matter of if, but when. So the approach in most school settings is it's not a matter of if you're going to have sex, it's when. So when Mm -hmm. you have sex, use a condom. When you have, you know, sex, make sure you're protected against uh, venereal disease. Even if you have same sex, Uh, attraction. Here's how men, I mean, it's like, so it's not a good place to, for parents on any level to rely on for that kind of education. And it's much more pronounced now than it was even, I don't know, 10 years ago. I mean, this Mm -hmm. has happened very, very quickly, right? The force, the the, the places where you can learn about this, not only are are ill-equipped, but they're also contrary in many cases to the kind of understanding that a Christian parent wants to give their son or daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's what uh, Pope Paul VI prophesied, right? It's, yeah, he it's did. exactly the point, right? If you bring in, in Vita, if you, yep, yeah. if you bring in contraception, it's going to create this division between, you know, uh, the the meaning of sex and love, right, and the sexual act. And yeah, you're 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 on point with what you said. It's the same thing in Mexico, right? Um, it's when you're in middle school, last time I checked, right? Yeah. When I was studying, it's in middle school where these um, doctors and, and train, I mean, these like university students who are, you know, studying medicine, they go to, to middle schools and they give a presentation, you know, on sexuality. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, they have demonstrations how to put on, put on a condom, sure. you know, with a cucumber. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just a thing you do. It's Mm. just a thing you do. It's just a thing, you know, to have fun, just make sure it's safe. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That doesn't get the job done, my friend. That's all that we, all that we do. The second thing you brought up was question of wounds, right? You said a wound that might happen in the case of the example you were giving of a young boy or girl who comes across porn and the next thing you know, they're trying to replicate it somewhere else. And then there's a woundedness there. Mm. The question that I have is what about the woundedness that happens before pornography? Yes. Okay. My, as an example, my wife and I work in homeless ministry here in Los Angeles and the number of women, this is women, homeless women. It's 80% of women who are homeless were sexually abused. 80%. Now you can't draw a direct line. It's not like 
I was sexually abused, therefore I'm homeless. But it's a heck of an overlap, right? Yes. And what I find in in ministry is the amount of woundedness that people have experienced as children and in other situations. And I wonder if you, in your own experience, the people that you work with, the clients that you work with, is there a high percentage of people who've had some type of trauma maybe before where like the porn was like the match that set off the blaze, mm -hmm. oh, but it's, yeah. but it's doing it on something else because mm -hmm. it, it can't just be distribution because yeah, if no, it was no, just no. distribution, then everybody would be a porn addict and not everybody is. Yeah. It's like, so. Yeah. 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 To, to understand the dynamic of, of, of porn compulsion or, or porn use. Uh, this is Dr. Peter Caponis, right? Um, we have to see it as a coin, uh, two sides of a coin, right? There is this, the the physical side, right, of the porn compulsion, which is, you know, how it affects the brain. But the other side is the emotional hook, mm. right, where porn is a getaway vehicle, right? It's it's an escape. Um, Dr. Jay Stringer in his book Unwanted, he describes how one of his patients, you know, was asking him like, okay, um, but what am I going to do in, you know, when I get into a fight with my wife if I don't have porn? You know, how am I going to calm myself? Wow. Right. Because it's, it's like a coping mechanism. Uh, it's a coping me mechanism for stress, for uncomfortable emotions. There's, there's, there's very famous acronym, uh, in, in this, the, the circles, right. It's blast or blasted. You can, you can find it, uh, in different ways, uh, which stands for bored, uh, lonely, angry, stressed, tired, and then that's blast. But you know, we, uh, in Freedom Coaching, we've added some. We have different ones than I've seen around. Uh, but we've added, you know, like hungry. We've added overwhelmed, depressed, right? So these are emotional triggers, mm. right? So when a person, since porn has become like a pill they use to self-medicate, yeah, you know, one of the, the first things we help them is to discover what, what are they, their triggers, right? So... And it becomes very evident, you know, that before porn use, what was happening before? I was stressed. I was angry. I was sad. I was feeling lonely. So then their 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 stress response, right, in their brain, you know, with with the compulsion, um, already has associated porn use with relief, mm. right? So I'm I'm bored or I'm sad. The brain automatically, okay, how can I feel better? Let's let's go to porn, right? Um, so yeah, there are wounds. Dr. Dr. J. Stringer talks about uh, childhood drivers, like key childhood drivers that could uh, predispose, right? Because nothing can determine us, you know, we are free, um, but can predispose our path towards porn, you know, and he talks about uh, childhood, like your upbringing, right? And if you were in a very rigid household where you felt, you know, you had to be, um, very perfect. You had to be perfect. You had to be in line all the time. You were impotent. You know, you, you just had to obey. You were not, you, you, you didn't feel free to do what you wanted to do. Okay. So that could create maybe someone who in porn finds a place where they are dominant. Mm. You know, they find content where they can imagine or fantasize themselves being the one that, um, that is potent, the one that, you know, has power over someone else. Sure. Right. So childhood upbringing, it could be, it could be like a rigid family. It could be 
a negligent family, right? No one to run to, right? No one listens to me. So they find in porn, you know, the feeling of being desired. It could be trauma yeah, as sexual abuse. That's one. But another type of trauma that I have encountered is like humiliation, you know, just mm. like being bullied. Uh, those events also create, you know, a feeling of, of, of shame and then porn gives them this getaway vehicle, this fantasy world where they, again, they are desired, you know, they are the ones that have the power. Uh, they are the ones that, you know, punish others. Um, sure. What's, what's the other one? Okay. Tri triangulation, you know, where parents, because uh, mom and dad, you know, they're supposed to have a loving relationship and support between them. But sometimes one of let's say the father, the father's absent. So the mom turns to one of her sons or to one of their, her, her children. Right. And the son becomes like the emotional husband mm. of the mother. So that way oh, wow. it's, it's like an emotional yeah. abuse. Right. So again, uh, many factors, many factors. That's super it, interesting it, though. And, and it's funny too, because like, you know, to talk about trauma and the fact that there might be an underlying trauma that then the pornography kind of ignited in a way, I don't want anybody to understand that I'm somehow minimizing the trauma of pornography itself. I can tell you in my case, it's a friend of mine many years ago called um, pornography use. He said, it stains your brain. It's mm -hmm. a brain stain is the way that he talked about it. I was like, I totally get what that means. Because even me, right, almost 15 years later, like those images will flash in there. Yes. Like I could close my eyes if I wanted to. And sometimes even if I don't want to, mm -hmm. and they're like, they show up and yes. no matter how much scrubbing you do. Now, this is where the transformative work, right? The real redemptive work of Jesus can, comes into play because it's more than what you can do. But I understand that concept of the act itself of using pornography is itself traumatizing because I don't know what else I would call that besides trauma. Mm -hmm. Some people have a vision of when they were assaulted. Some people, my wife is a survivor of rape. Okay. So when she was very, very young, but she's 49 years old and trust me, that's still somewhere in her vision field, yes. right? Yes. And so the act of these things also traumatizes and it traumatizes mm -hmm. you and by your own hand, which is the great ridiculous part of it. You're doing it literally to yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, I believe it's, is a hippocampus, right? <laughs> the, yeah. w w why it stays seared into the brain. That's a good word too, seared. And yeah, what, what we offer, and, and it's true. Um, I think all the clients have asked and it's the same for me. Like I remember the first scene I ever saw. You know, I, I remember the day. I remember where I was. I remember. It's like a timestamp. Yeah, it is. Um, so the thing is not in general with sexual desire and with these memories, uh, our objective is not to suppress them, mm. right? Because suppressing them is just uh, like tugging it under the, the carpet, right? That's, that's not going to work. It's going to build up and just pop out uh, in a different way, maybe. So it's about learning how to, and Christopher, I like how Christopher West puts, West puts it <laughs> when when you see 
a pornified image, well, he was talking about beauty, right? He was talking mm-hmm. about beauty, but it applies, right? When you see beauty, a beautiful woman, you have three choices, right? Either you try to, you despise it, you know, you, you try to repress it, try to reject it, you know, you know, you stuff it. Or you indulge in it, right? You idolize it. You make an idol out of, mm. out of beauty. You know, yeah. we, we men tend to idolize women's beauty. Or you liturgize it, mm. right? You integrate it. You transform that into an occasion of prayer, right? So you, tra- you transform that desire that's stirred up in you, you know, that mountain that's stirred up. You transform it into an encounter with God. That's beautiful. Right. So, I mean, that's uh, talking about beauty and images, right? But um, with, with trauma or those memories, it's, it's kind of the same, right? It's not about suppressing. It's not about indulging in them. You know, it's about transforming it. You know, and again, that's what redemption does. Amen. Right. Can we talk a little bit about the, if there are stages of kind of coming out of this, right? And I don't know if there are, right? You you've, you talked about earlier kerygma, right? Which is that sort of idea of knowing that God loves you, knowing he made you for a very particular mission, having an encounter with Jesus. That to me is like the starting point for all of this. But in your work, do you see that there are moments or milestones as people are very actively having this to where they're like now have victory over this kind of compulsion? Does it go through like stages like grief does as an example, Mm -hmm. or is it not like that? Mm -hmm. In my experience, I haven't seen like clear stages. I have seen like milestones when, Mm. when for example, they start realizing like, Oh, Hey, you know, like maybe I'm still slipping but the times where I have like applied uh, the tools, the times where I have like stopped um, to to breathe, to pray about it, to, you know, analyze it and different, you know, tools we give them. Whenever I do that, I'm able to break free. OK, so they start like realizing, OK, this is possible. This is possible. Um, other milestones is when they realize like, oh, hey, you know, when they can separate okay i have these sexual desires but that's not sin you know that's not sinful right the or i can have these dirty thoughts right these sexual thoughts they come up but they're not you know one when they immediately come up it's not sin it's not sin. like okay you know doesn't it doesn't mean i have to act out right maybe i have these thoughts from things i remember but you know okay Lord, I'm having these thoughts, mm. you know, um, and I'm having these desires. I, you know, I want to watch porn, um, but me wanting to watch porn is not sinful. Right? It's just a desire. It's a spontaneous desire. You know, the sin enters when I decide, you know, when I follow the action. Those are kinds of the milestones. Um, also, we have, I mean, we, we do have our process like divided in, in four stages, Right. Um, and one of the, the biggest things that we offer that I haven't found in, in another place is this part of the redeemed vision, you know, learning how to see. And we, we teach them this, this method that Steve Pokorny, I, I guess he developed with Father Thomas Loya's input on, it's called, we call it vision training, mm. right? Where it's, you learn how to see a person, uh, a woman a naked woman um, in a way that even, you know, if 
if it presents, um, you know, they're not. You're not going to lust after not, them. Yeah, they're not going to lust after them. You know, it's that. That's just beautiful. Like when when one of my clients, when a client uh, refers to me, you know, because we, we always try to start our our. Our, our meetings, you know, asking like, hey, what, what victories have you had? You know, what's been going on? What good things have you had? In general, you know, not, doesn't have to be specific about this, but in general. But when they, they share with me how, you know, oh, you know, I, I had this temptation, but I was able to, you know, or you know, I saw these women and then I just immediately, you know, prayed about it. And like, I kind of don't, I kind of feel disgusted about, like porn comes to my mind, but it starts kind of to disgust me. Yeah. You know, those are the moments when I'm like, yes, <laughs> you know, you, thank God. How important is it for us to pray for the actors that are involved in this stuff? And is that part of the program that you do? I'll give you just two seconds of the mm-hmm. reason why I ask. I, I mentioned a little bit about my wife, right, and her story, and there's a lot more there. And But now she preaches and teaches about this stuff, which is really great how God has turned that into a yes. amazing thing. But she went to a confession, you know, one time, and she was having some trouble with a lot of anger around the people who had abused her. Seems reasonable. Um, and mm-hmm. the priest kind of upset her in the confession, because upset her, not like I, she got angry, but kind of shocked her by when he said, you need to pray for those people. You know, he asked her, do you want to see, do you want to see your abusers in heaven? It's a very difficult question, right? Mm-hmm. She knew the answer was supposed to be yes. She asked, he even asked her, do you love those people? Not do you like them? Because that's an easy saying. I don't like them. Great. But do you love them? Do you want to see them in heaven? It was a huge spiritual challenge. And the advice that he gave her was, you want to get to a point where you can, because she said, no, I can't. No, father, can't do it. Sorry. Even though I know I'm supposed to, do you want to see them in heaven? Nope. Don't want, I want them to be in hell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know. Understandable. Understandable, Mm -hmm. but also incredible. That's not what we should want. Right. And she knew that. But when she said, what do I do? How do I get there? He simply told her to pray for them. And it took two years when she tells her story of literally going to mass and begrudgingly going like, okay, please bless. You know, that was the beginning. And then like two years later, she came to a point during mass when the thought of something bad happening to those people hurt her like it would hurt her if something bad happened to me. Now, she's never talked to any of these people, never seen them before, but God was able to create that transformation. Beautiful. And so I wonder, because I love the idea of liturgizing the experience. That's beautiful too. Like, hey, beautiful woman, thanks be to God. Just like you might say, beautiful sight, beautiful view, the ocean, a tree, Mm -hmm. awesome, great. I love that. But how can prayer for, you know, an Mm -hmm. actress or an image of, you know, what everybody calls like thirst traps now, right? So like this crazy, you know, image on Instagram that's not pornography, but is intended to titillate, is intended to draw you in. How does prayer factor into this mm-hmm. with those people? Like, okay. yeah. Yeah, we, we do have an activity. It's not, maybe it's not like directly pray for the actors, right? It's not like the instruction. We do have an activity where we go through, Kind of uh, like a timeline, you know, of of things they've they have experienced, right? I don't want to give away too much, um, but there is definitely like prayer in that, you know, prayer in okay, 
uh, if if there's something that is still coming up to your mind, you know, to your yeah, to your to your mind, to your thoughts regularly, you know, okay, pray about it. We suggest you 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 know you, these words kind of just to frame the yeah. the, the prayer. Um, we do have like a forgiveness prayer, mm. okay, um, with with the events, and we do have like a what's it called like a, a soul tie like uh, breaking or cutting the, the yeah. soul ties. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's, that's an interesting thought. It's not, not directly. Well, yeah. But it's just, it's tough to lust after someone you're praying for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's not directly like that, but, but yeah, we, we, I think it would be beneficial to be more direct. Yeah. More what open what message that. would you have for somebody who might be interested in, you know, taking an active role in work, a ministry focused in this area. Like if somebody's listening and going like, interesting, I've had the same issue. I think I like what, you know, Saul is doing. I, you know, I want to figure out how I might want, God may be calling me to this kind of, of ministry or approach. What would you say to them? Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Well, first of all, to be, first of all, to be grounded in who they are. You know, because if, if it's a calling, well, first you have to know who you are, right? Be grounded mm. in your identity as a son, as a daughter of God. And because from there, that's, that's the, I guess that's the only thing that matters um, in, in maybe like with capital letters, right? Because then you're going to be able to do whatever God's, whatever God puts in your heart, right? So first, who are you? What gifts do you have? Mm. And also this subject you know, it does get kind of, um, because it's uh, it's not an easy subject, right? It isn't. And and sometimes yeah. we do have to discuss with clients, like uncomfortable experiences they've gone through, and you know we try to not be explicit. You know, just like the the details that we need, no more. Um, but still, you know, after after each meeting, it's still like, okay, you know, I got to pray, got to like do some mental and spiritual hygiene, mm. right? So, so like first on, on these subjects, um, where, where's your heart in, in regards to your own healing? Mm. You know, I, I think that would be first thing, first thing to, to do, right? To, to focus on your own healing. And then that's the beautiful thing as you put an, a perfect example with your wife, right? If, if you allow God, he can use your wounds, right? Just like the crucifixion. That was the worst event ever, you know, turned into the most beneficial and glorious event ever for all humankind. Same thing with, with you, with me, with everybody. If we allow God to touch our wounds, mm. he can just transform them and bring Amen. a lot of good, a lot of glory to him, you know, and salvation to others. I'm increasingly convinced, Saul, that the things that we're desperately trying to solve out in the world, you know, pornography, uh, you know, mistreatment of individuals, poverty, homelessness, abortion, all of these things— I've come to the realization in my age that it's increasingly less about solving and it's all to do with healing those mm-hmm. situations. Mm-hmm. And I think this falls into that particular category um, as well. Look, I, I know we've got to get you um, on your way here, but I did want you to um, mention to people how they can come in contact with 
the work that you're doing, the program that you that you run, like the stuff behind it, uh, so that they can follow your work and mm-hmm. or maybe even follow you personally. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I personally don't have uh, like social media. Um, so it would be if to get in contact with us, freedom slash no yeah is it uh, el guion yeah, el guion slash yeah, okay, or, yeah. or, or, or dash yeah or dash, dash freedom yeah. dash uh, coaching dot net freedom dash coaching dot net we'll put it in the show notes as well okay. but yeah mm-hmm. yeah better um and you can you can contact us there right and any of us we have beautiful coaches mm-hmm. right uh, any of us would be willing and happy to to have a chat you know doesn't matter if it's a meeting or not, you know, just, uh, we're open to, to, because that's the first thing, right. To, to help help. That's the most important thing. Um, yeah, that's cause I don't, I don't run my own, well, I don't have social media. I don't. Yeah. Good for you. It's not my Very wise. Calling. <laughs> Very wise. Yeah. Um, well, we'll include all that information in the show notes as yeah, well. Sure. And other things that we talked about will also be in the show notes and people can get in touch with you. Look, uh, for my part, I'm very happy that you're out there and I'm very happy that this organization is out there and that you're doing this kind of ministry work because I actually do think that there's particular issues that give rise to a variety of other things, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. th- and I think this is one of them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's almost like attacking the serpent at the head in a lot of ways. And we're able to make um, a lot of progress in the spiritual life by better understanding how to talk about these issues and then having a solution for them if we do find ourselves caught up in that world as I was, as you were, as millions, millions of other, you know, men and women are caught up with. So I'm very happy that you're out there doing what you're doing. We'll keep our prayers uh, for you going um, so that you can continue to thrive in this, uh, in this ministry. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your prayers. That's the most, most important thing. Many times we, uh, we kind of rely on on our 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 means, our resources, you know, and like, oh, you know, there's a lot of money into this. It's going to be a, a great hit, uh, and but we kind of fall into this semi Pelagianism, yeah, right, where you know it's it's uh, doing 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 activism, 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 apostolate, 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 but you know, an apostolate without prayer, it's just like a, a zombie. Amen. Right. Yeah. So so yeah. Um, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation. It was, Absolutely. It was a joy. And as I, you know, normally on this show that we end with a segment called wait, what, where we ask, you know, three very unique questions designed specifically for you. Sadly, in this case, I will, because we're doing the show in the middle of the week, I actually haven't prepared those questions, Okay. but I will leave you with one. Here's one question for you. Um, we'll put you on the spot. If you're going to title this episode, what title do you give it? There's hope. I love it. Awesome. We'll end on that. Thank you for being here. So it's been a great privilege to meet you. God bless you. And if you're listening to our voices, that means it's time to subscribe. Share this episode with someone who you believe it might help. Keep listening to the show for other recommendations and suggestions. And we'll see you again next time on Living the Call. Living the Call.